So John chapter 2, if you would turn there in your Bibles, John chapter 2. Beginning in verse 1. On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Verse 6, now there were six, uh, or, or set there, six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now, and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, he did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called to the bridegroom, and he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. Note this, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. Father, we pray as we always do that you would teach us, Lord, it's your word. We believe that. We believe, Lord, that your word is alive. You tell us that in your word that it's pertinent for every generation of believers, Lord. And we pray that we would glean from your word this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your presence. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for filling each believer with yourself and teaching us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been in John's Gospel for over a month, and we're just now getting to chapter 2. There's a lot here. And I'll tell you, chapter 1 of John is so unique and so powerful. I mean, there's some similarities that we find in the Synoptic Gospels concerning John the Baptist, but there are other things that were not mentioned by the other Gospel writers. Jesus, now, he, he makes his way to Canaan. Remember last week, we saw that Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and so he found Philip. So what, did he want to go to Galilee for the wedding? You know, I, I don't know. It says that it was the third day. Was this the third day of Jesus' public ministry? Or was this the third day of, uh, from the time that he called Philip? Or was this the third day of the week? I don't know. But it's important that it's there because the Holy Spirit directed the writers to write the things, to record the things that they recorded. So we're told that there was a wedding there in Cana, and uh, Jesus' mother was there, and that Jesus and his disciples were invited guests to the wedding. You know, guys, we gather from the scriptures that Jesus and uh, his family were not well off. They weren't wealthy people. You listen to some of these modern-day name-it-and-claim-it you know, teachers like Kenneth Copeland and they, they try to make it out like Jesus was a tycoon, you know, and, and when he said he had no place to lay his head during his public ministry, that was because he wasn't near one of his many palaces or whatever. I mean, just absurd, absurd things. Because, of course, they've made the gospel and the teachings of Christ into an opportunity to bring wealth upon themselves. Kenneth Copeland being one of the wealthiest uh, preachers in the world. But we gather from the scriptures that they weren't very well off. I mean, we see the beginning. They're in uh, Nazareth there, and a, a mean city, you know, and, and um, surely they weren't very well off. And if they weren't very well off, there's a good chance that those who are getting married 
And those who were coming to this wedding feast weren't very well off either. You know that old adage, birds of a feather flock together? <laughs> and sometimes that's true, you know, you just kind of, you, you just kind of hang out with people that are a lot like you. You say, why are you saying all this? Because there was a time that the wine ran out. Um, guys, a wedding feast, and not like our culture today. You know, there's a lot that goes into receptions and weddings today. And, um, but, you know, a, a wedding will take place on a day. A reception will take place on the same day. It will last for a few hours. When it's over, it's over. But in the Hebrew culture, and especially at the time of Jesus, a wedding could last seven days. So it was up to the bridegroom to make sure there was enough food, enough drink for all of the guests that came. That was the responsibility of the groom. Uh, keep that in mind, because later on in John's Gospel account, when Jesus told his disciples that, you know, his hour had come, we saw it here, my hour has not yet come, he says that five times, and then finally in chapter 17, he says, my hour has come, as he's praying to the Father. Um, when his hour had come, he said to his disciples, as he was speaking to them about things that were coming, things that were going to take place, he spoke to them and I completely lost my thought. Isn't that, oh gosh, that's scary when you're, I mean, it's totally, it's gone. It's floating around this room someplace. It will come back though, probably tonight when I lay my head on the pillow. Anyway, I don't know where I was going with that. But it was a really, really good point. You would have, you would have enjoyed it. Anyway, oh, I know where I was going. Yes, there it is. It's back. It just had to make a round <laughs> around the room. That later on in chapter 14, Jesus gave the reference to he going to prepare a place for him. And this, of course, is wedding. This is bridegroom language. And so it's important, guys. You look at this. We're told about a wedding. None of the other gospel writers tells us about a wedding. This wedding, no doubt, it didn't start on the day, you know, that Jesus arrived and, and Mary came out and said, oh, they don't have any wine, you know. Um, no doubt it had been going for some time. And when, that's what the scripture says, when they ran out of wine is when Mary came and said to Jesus, they have no wine. It's interesting how Mary said to the servants, you know, to do whatever Jesus tells you to do. So she anticipated that Jesus is going to do something about this. And Jesus made it clear, you know, as he said, my hour has not yet come. It's almost as if he might say, now, Mom, <laughs> I'm not living my life according to your plans or purpose. I'm living my life. I'm moving by the, by the, the leading of my Father. I'm, I'm, I'm living my life according to the Father's agenda. Father has a, an agenda. That's why I'm here. And, and there's a purpose for everything, and everything will, will, will you know, have its time and its place. So Jesus does something, and we're all familiar with this portion of scripture, aren't we, that he made the water into wine. In fact, we're told that there were six uh, water pots of stone according to the pure manner of purification of the Jews, and that these six um, containers um, were equaled, you know, each one a piece, 20 to 30 gallons of water. So he tells them to fill the water pots, and I don't think that necessarily means that the water pots were empty. Uh, it says that they filled the water pots to the brim. I think Jesus just wanted them to know, you know, maybe this one's half and that one's got, you know, a quarter left or whatever. Just fill it up completely, fill it up. And so they did so. And then, of course, Jesus performed the miracle. Now, I want us to look at this for a moment. I, it's interesting how some Christians, in fact, the church that we first attended when we first, uh, when I first became a Christian, a um, little kind of Bible church, uh, they were very um, set on the fact that the wine that Jesus made was not fermented. 
In essence, they said that Jesus made grape juice out of water. Because, of course, you don't want fermented wine. But the very word wine means fermented grape. So what Jesus did is he made wine. It was fermented. It was wine. Um, Jesus, according to John's gospel account, Remember, there's seven I am statements in John's gospel account, seven signs or miracles recorded in John's account. So according to John's account, Jesus' first recorded miracle was at a wedding, and a wedding is one of the most happy times, isn't it? Did you know that in John's gospel account, the last sign that Jesus performed was at a funeral? So you have the most happiest time, in life, one of the most happiest times in life, maybe not so. You know, sometimes you talk to a, a couple that's gotten married and you ask them what was the highlight of the, the day and many of them, like Tracy and I, we could not wait to leave to kind of start our life together. It, was, it wasn't like all the other stuff that went along with it. I and mean, we were appreciative to our parents for making a nice wedding for us and all for Tracy's parents. It falls on their shoulders, you know. But, um, but we couldn't wait to leave and kind of get our, our lives moving forward as a married couple. But it's interesting. You have the, the first and the last. You have a marriage. You have a funeral. I, I think when I look at that, when I consider that, I think that Jesus is with us in the good times and the bad times. Um, you know, I shared with the first service before I started teaching that yesterday was a very frightening day for uh, Nehemiah and Tosh. Their little middle child uh, choked and they had to call an ambulance in the fire department and it was just a very, very frightening, frightening thing. Tosh was telling us the story and um, at one point uh, she asked David, so their oldest son, um, what's wrong, what's wrong? And uh, David, he's choking, you know. And then Ch David asked the question, is he dying? And T Tosh said, mom said, just pray. And, and David dropped to his knees and he just started praying for his little brother, you know. Um, but times like that, they're scary times. You don't want to have too many times like that in your life. But the Lord was with them every step of the way, you know. The Lord is with us. We need to acknowledge his presence with us. So Jesus, he, he has the servants fill up the, the water pots. And, and then, of course, as we read, the, the servants were to draw some out, and they were to take uh, what they poured out of the water pots. They were to bring it to the, the master of the, of the feast. And I bet it was a great relief when, you know, they handed what, possibly could be water because the last time they touched it it was water to bring a cup of water to the master of the feast and I'm sure it was a relief when he put it to his lips and drank and said this is really good this is really good guys um I it's no secret that I hate anything that causes people's personalities to change. I hate alcohol, I hate drugs. Hate isn't even a word that's strong enough for me. Uh, I hate it, I absolutely hate it. I've watched so many lives be absolutely destroyed by something that did not have to destroy, I mean, it didn't have to be in their life. It's something that they invited into their life. Um, we, you know, we're not born, you know, you know, drunkards or drug addicts or something like that. We invite those things into our life and they could take control. You say, well, why did Jesus make wine then? I mean, that's a lot of wine. 180 gallons of wine? Did they really need that much wine? What was going on here? Was Jesus condoning intoxication? No. Because that would be condoning something that his word speaks against. Now, guys, it's interesting to note, in the Bible, the word wine is used, it's seen 220 times. And a lot of those times, when wine is mentioned, it speaks of joy. 
So there's joy that can be found in wine. It's interesting also to note that the root word of, of the word that's used there in the Hebrew and also the Greek means to possess or to take ownership of. So something that could be a joy can also become something that takes possession of and control of your life. And so there's a warning there, right? If only um, we weren't gluttons about things. You know, food is good, but if we're gluttons about it, that's not good, you know. And, and we just need to know how to show restraint. And as, restraint, and as Christians, we, we have that power within ourselves. It's interesting, you might wonder, well, what's with the water pots? They were there for the purification of the Jews, according to the purification of the Jews. This was a lot of water. You know, the Jews would wash, some devout Jews, they would wash not only before the meal, we kind of teach our children that, don't we? We teach our children to wash your hands. That's usually what we say. When our grandkids come over, we always say, wash your hands, we're going to eat, you know. And usually they stick their hands under running water and they come out with dripping hands, you know. But um, wash your hands. But devout Jews would wash their hands not only at the beginning of the meal, they would wash their hands between each course of the meal. So, you know, you're, and of course they wouldn't be eating this, but just by way of illustration, you eat your meat, and then you stop, and you wash your hands a certain way. We know that the Pharisees would wash their hands. Remember, they would use about an eggshell amount of water, and they would take that water, and they would, they would pour it from their wrists down to their fingertips, and they would use the fist of their other hand, and they would wipe it, and then they would do the same. And they would go through this ritual. It was a ceremonial washing of purification. So you would think that a meal could take a long time. That's another thing that we do differently here. I think most cultures of the world take time eating. We like try to see how fast we could get done with our food, you know, and, and that's why we have so many issues, I think. But, but they, would, they would eat their meat and then they would go and they would wash and then they would come back and maybe eat their mashed potatoes and then they would go back and and wash their hands and they'd come back and maybe eat their vegetables or whatever it might be and so this was something that they would do and Jesus uses what's already there these vessels these clay pots they're already there and so he just has them fill them up so that he might use them now I want you to think about this because this is important guys if Jesus could make water into wine then Jesus could have filled up the half-full water pots by just speaking the word or thinking the thought, right? And if he could have filled up the water pots without the aid of the servants, then he could have surely made, you know, not even go through the process of filling up with water. I'm just going to fill it up with wine. I'm going to do it miraculously. It's going to be a done deal. And then I'll just send a servant over there to taste the wine and, you know. But he doesn't do that. He has the servants participate. You know, guys, at the end of our text, it says that this was the beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, it doesn't say anything about the servants, but I think it's safe to say that the servants believed in him too. Because the master of the feast had no idea where this wine came from. The last he heard is they were out of wine. Now he's drinking the best of the wine. The servants knew where the wine came from. They were participating in it. So the first bit of life application that I draw from this is I want to be a servant of the Lord. I want to be a man that is being used by the Lord. I want to be in a place of blessing. They had that privileged place of blessing because they were just simply obedient to the Lord. They didn't ask questions. They didn't say, well, what are you going to do with the water and the pots? They just simply did it. This is what he wants us to do. You almost wonder if anyone turned around and said, who is he anyway? I, I don't know. I just, let's just do it. This is what he wants us to do. And, and they did it. And they were in a place of blessing because they knew exactly what was going to happen. Because I, I absolutely hate alcohol or drugs, anything that intoxicates, anything that changes the personality of a person, 
I grew up in a home like that. It's a long, I have a long history, a long family line of that. I said to the first service, and I'll say it to you, if you come from a long line of alcoholics, it'd be best if you never picked up a bottle or a glass of alcohol ever, ever. Why play with it? Why chance it? I don't know how it all works. I just know that some people seem to be more, you know, drawn to stuff and become more addicted to stuff than other people. And I just think we need to do our due diligence. I don't want to, I want to be free. I want to be free from anything. You know, I, I'm, I'm a freak about this. I had brain surgery a number of years ago, decade ago or whatever, brain surgery. And they sent me home with a whole bunch of medication. And, uh, and I, you know, when I went into the surgery, I had two fears. One, that the anesthesiologist was going to do something, and I'd come out dumber than I was when I went in. And, uh, and then the second fear was I did not want to be addicted to anything. And so I'm home recuperating, recovering. I take my drugs, and I flush them down the toilet. And uh, a few days later, a doctor from the church came over and said, Dan, you know, some of those pills were dealing with the swelling of your brain. You need to take those. There's no side effects from those. But that's how strict I am, because I don't want anything to affect my ability to think. I have a hard enough thinking as it is. I don't want anything to hinder that. So, the Bible, 220 times, wine is a symbol of joy, but when was the first time wine was mentioned in the Bible? Do you guys remember? It was mentioned in Genesis chapter 9 in verse 21. Then he, the he there is Noah, this is mission accomplished, you know, he saved humanity and every living thing from God's judgment as God told him to do. Mission accomplished. He plants a vineyard. This takes time. <laughs> he picks the grapes. This takes time. He ferments them, making some wine. This takes time. And it says, and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. The first mention of, of wine in the Bible doesn't speak of joy. It's, it speaks of something really that, that led to debauchery. Do you guys know that no one is... Uh, Convinced, there's not a Bible teacher, scholar, or, or commentator that's convinced that's that's in agreement on what took place when Noah was naked there and his son came in. There's there's no. And 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 you know maybe we'll ask Noah when we see him in heaven. But even if we were to ask Noah after the account, he'd probably say, "I don't know." You know, I don't know what happened. I wasn't there. But we know that one of his sons looked upon his nakedness, whatever that means. The Bible seems to indicate that there was something else that was happening there. Something else that never would have happened if, that, if he never would have become drunk. The other two sons come in. They back their way in. This is a picture of grace. They back their way in. They don't look upon their father. And they throw a cover over their father's nakedness. I want to say, you know, just me, Dan, uh, they, they ran out of wine. I was telling the first service, I remember when my sister got married, uh, the first time she was um, a, a Catholic priest, you know, we were raised Roman Catholic, and so a Catholic priest was officiating the, the wedding, and, and as uh, the reception was taking place, Tracy and I and Joshua, our baby, you know, uh, were in a table right in front of my dad and the priest, the Catholic priest. They were right behind us. I mean, close enough to where my dad could reach forward. All of the tables were kind of facing one direction, and so we were all lined up. You didn't have people with their backs to anybody. And, or we, I guess all of our backs were to each other, but you know what I mean. Anyway, and um, my dad was back there with the priest, and they were drinking shots. And so my, my dad tapped me on the shoulder, Turned, I turned around, and he says, this is Father so-and-so. And I said, hello, how are you? And then my dad says, as he's intoxicated, to the father, Father, 
Would you set my son straight? He's one of those born-again Christians. And I just looked at that, and I thought, oh, boy, the hypocrisy. I mean, Father, priest, do you really think you're going to speak any life-giving words into my life? You're a man given over to something that holds you in bondage. I want to say, big deal, they ran out of wine, but, you know, it really was a big deal. In fact, we're told in extra-biblical literature that a bridegroom who does not provide enough food or drink for the wedding guest would be fined. Think of that. What's your charge? What are you in for? You know? <laughs> oh, we ran out of wine, you know. We ran out of food. Those little wieners, you know, we ran out of them. I thought we had enough, but the kids kept taking them, you know. It seems so strange. But again, you know, the picture was, this is a time of joy. This is a time of celebration. This is a time that we could rejoice. I think that it's worth noting that the first word that Jesus spoke to the servants was fill. And uh, I, I think of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, um, blessed or happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Remember what Paul said, be not filled with wine, which leads to debauchery and all, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not a one-time thing, be filled with the Holy Spirit and then you're done. He says, be ye being filled. That's what the original language would read that way. Be ye being filled. It's an ongoing thing with the Holy Spirit. We have this contrast between wine and the Spirit. Guys, if wine can control and, and, and take over one's life and and it has the ability to change one's personality in a negative way. Think of what the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the believer can do. He could do all those things in a positive way. In a positive way. Think of how your personality has changed since you've been walking in the Spirit, walking in obedience. You want to live according to the ways of the Lord. And you just look at your life and you just think, man, the Lord is so wonderful. Uh, you know, I, I was thinking this, this uh, on Friday night, uh, our family, uh, we went down to the theater and we saw the Jesus Revolution and, and, um, and we had, uh, you know, we took up, I don't know, five rows or whatever, the, the whole gang. We had all, all the kids from Jude, the youngest, on up, you know, and, and um, I was wondering how, you know, the kids would like it if they would be quiet and they all were I mean it's not like it was an action-packed film or anything you know it's just kind of a story of the Jesus movement and of course it spoke of Calvary Chapel and um, it really kind of spoke to Tracy and I because this is a part of our roots um, but I watching that film and and just kind of thinking about the film and how you know chronologically some things were out of order but they they're trying to tell a story in an hour and a half. And so you kind of have to take things out of chronological order. Anyway, the reason I bring that up is because I, I was thinking this morning as we were worshiping the second service, I was thinking of uh, just the, kind of these flashes in my mind, so thankful for my life, so thankful. I'm so thankful, you know, I, I don't want to, go too detailed because you guys hear me yapping all the time but you know first time I saw Tracy I fell in love with her I mean it really was love at first sight but it was years later before we actually like um, you know had a conversation and I was able to ask her out and she said yes you know so it was years later that that happened it was like a week before she graduated from high school and just, you know, I just loved being around Tracy and, and just her. And Tracy had become a Christian when she was 16. And so I think when I met her, she was, 
maybe 17 or 18, maybe, maybe, no, no, we got married when you were 18. So, what, you're like 12 or something? No, <laughs> you aren't that young. But anyway, you know, she had come to faith in Christ, but her faith was really young because she attended the church, uh, actually Calvary Chapel, San Diego. Mike McIntosh was the pastor down at the theater and Greek theater, and she attended there, but, you know, she couldn't get there all the time. It was quite a distance. And her faith was young, and, um, and you know, she started dating me, and she really shouldn't have started dating me, but I'm so glad that she did. I'm so glad she did. You know, whenever we tell our story, people always say, you know, yeah, but it worked for you. And I'll say, but let me, let me show you how many people we have, how many ladies, how many men in the church we have that are married to nonbelievers. And this has not been their story. So when the Bible says, be not unequally yoked, with the non-believer, take it seriously, you know. But in our case, you know, the Lord was gracious to Tracy and surely gracious to me. But I just think of how, you know, our life, how the Lord directed us just kind of every step along the way. And things that we wanted in our flesh, we weren't seeking the Lord. We just, in our flesh, we, we were kind of hippies, and we wanted to live off the land, and we wanted to live in a hand-hewn home, you know, like a log home or something like that. So we moved up to Northern California, and, and um, you know, I've told the story, but, you know, within two weeks after moving up to Northern California, I became a Christian. I mean, that quick. And on the day that I received the Lord, the Lord just kind of spoke to my heart. And he said, Danny, I don't want you ever to drink alcohol again. You've heard the story. But that was my story. And, and you know, I'm, I'm 20 years old. I married for a year, Tracy and I. Um, Tracy did not drink. But I'll tell you, that first year of marriage, you know, I would come home intoxicated. And I would drive drunk and stuff like that. Just, you know, just stupid stuff. And I'm so amazed that she even put up with me but the Lord spoke that to my heart and and I and it was so pivotal in my life you know I started drinking when I was 12 years old and so I just you know it had a, a it had such a grip on me even at that young age by the time I was got you know I was legal to go and <laughs> buy alcohol on my own I was done with it by then thank God you know but I just think of our lives together. I think of the fact that, you know, just our moves. And we move from Grass Valley. We move back down to Santa Barbara. And, and we go to a, a concert at a Calvary Chapel that was meeting in a YMCA, Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara. And, and we were just so taken by the love of the people. That was it. We had not heard the word of God taught at all. It was the love of the people. Guys, you don't know how much of an impact or not you can have upon people, just how we treat people when they come in here, you know. And then the next Sunday, we, we went to church, and oh, man, I was sold then. The pastor gets up, and he's using his Bible, and he's teaching from the Bible, and I thought, this is so amazing. And, and we grew so much in the year that we were there in Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara, and, and then we moved back up to Northern California, and some of our friends from from the church that we attended, they had been gone for a year as well. They were in Santa Cruz. We were in Santa Barbara for a year. They moved back a week after we moved back. We didn't keep in contact with them at all in that year. We saw them. We said, like, you guys, you're back. We're back, you know. And then we were kind of nervous because we had to tell them that we weren't going to go back to the church that we were attending. And we said, you know, guys, we love you guys, and, but I, I know that you guys are probably going to go back to this church. And we just, man, we've been going to another church in Santa Barbara, and we've been taught the word of God, and we've, been, we've grown so much in that year. And, and Dave and Joy, they look at each other, and they're smiling. And they said, what church? We said, Calvary Chapel. And they started laughing. They said, we've been at Calvary Chapel Santa Cruz for the past year. His brother happened to come out of Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. He was on staff with Pastor Chuck back in the early days. 
And he said, we were going to tell you guys that we're going to go to the Calvary Chapel here in Grass Valley. Calvary Chapel in Grass Valley was known as the hippie church. It was, they just thought, you know, the reputation they had is they'll let anybody in that place, you know. And, um, and I'll tell you, we grew so much. And I just look at my life, and I look at our lives, and it has not been easy. There's been struggles. There's been difficulties. And, and I just think of the people. I've, I've just been, you know, kind of reminiscing a lot, maybe because the Jesus Revolution came out, maybe because the things that are happening at Asbury, just trying to figure that out and wanting it to be truly a movement of the Lord, you know, just kind of thinking of all these things, thinking of our Lord, how he could work and how he does work, how he sets people free and everything. I've been thinking about that type of stuff a lot. I hunger and I thirst for righteousness and I want to see the Lord move in our day, don't you? And, you know, we say that, but would, you, would we be resistant? Because if the Lord was moving in our day, it would look different than it did if you're familiar with the Jesus movie, it'd look different. The hippies are gone, you know. But you still have people that are in bondage. I was listening. I know I'm rambling here, but I'm going to bring this all to an end in a moment. But I was listening to some of the people I used to listen to when I first got saved, you know. I was really into music. When I was a teenager, I went to concerts all the time. You could throw a name out, and I probably went to see them, you know, and when Tracy and I were first married, we would go to the Santa Barbara Bowl and we would see, you know, Bonnie Raitt and Stephen Stills and, you know, things like that. We loved music. And when I became a Christian, I, um, I threw away all my albums because it was like I just wanted a clean break. And uh, Tracy said, maybe some of those you shouldn't have thrown away. There was some good stuff in there, you know. And, but, but, and I started listening to Jesus music, and Jesus music, you know, the quality of Jesus music wasn't very good. Yeah, you know what I mean? But it was still Jesus mu music. And lately, I've been listening to some of that old Jesus music. Last night, I was listening to an interview from Matthew Ward, uh, second chapter of Acts. It goes way back, you know, before they made the wheel round, you know, no. But he and his two sisters, you know, they were Christian singers. And so he was being interviewed. He's my age, old guy. And the interviewer was asking him different things, you know, about his relationship with Keith Green. So that kind of gives you the time frame, Keith Green, how they were friends. But M Matthew said that it was hard to hang out with Keith because he was so intense. And he said, you know, it's almost as if Keith knew, though he couldn't have known, that he only had a short time to live, and he tried to jam everything into, you know, the short time he had. He only walked with Jesus for seven years, and you think of the impact he had on so many in that short period of time. But they were asking him, the interviewer was asking him about his cancer, and so he's talking about his cancer. And then, and then he said, um, and your children, he says, I'm, I'm almost reluctant to bring this up. And then he mentions his daughter, one of his daughters. And Matthew kind of swallows, you know, and he says, yeah. He says, that was a hard time in our life. He says, our daughter, that daughter, was the Bible thumper in our family. She had five children. She homeschooled her kids. She just was on fire for the Lord. She's very, you know, devout in her belief. He said, and then something happened, and she just started drinking. He said, um, eventually, you know, she lost her family, and he said, we hadn't heard for, from her for about two weeks. She had moved back to Colorado, and for about two weeks, and he said, that was unusual, because usually we would touch base with her, and so, because they didn't live in the same state, they had a well call, um, you know, police come and check, and his daughter was dead. And he says, that was the hardest time in my life. He said, I wrestled with that. You know, things like that, you ask the Lord, Lord, how could this happen? How do things like this happen to your people? Anyway, why am I rambling? Because none of us are exempt 
from possibly becoming ensnared in bondage. We need to recognize that. We need to set up safeguards in our lives. We need to really have convictions, personal convictions, and those convictions will come as we're personally seeking the Lord. We're not listening to what other people's convictions are, but we're personally seeking the Lord. And as we're seeking the Lord, and as the Lord is speaking to us, and he says, no, I don't want you to do this. No, I don't want you to do that. And even if other people might think, that's ridiculous. You're so narrow. You're so restricted. You know, there's these private things, these secret things that the believer, the genuine believer has with their Lord, just between them and the Lord. I don't care what other people think. This is my conviction. This has saved me from a lot of woe. You know, guys, you look at this. Jesus makes the water into wine. He wasn't endorsing intoxication but he was blessing. And you say, why, why did the Lord perform this miracle? And some would say, especially modern-day Christians, we would say, well, because he wanted them to have a good time because modern-day Christianity is all about us. It's almost as if God lives to make us happy. And if we're not happy, then God's not doing his job. And that's why we need to be in the Bible because that's not the God we serve. We serve. Not he serves we serve. Well, why would he do this? Guys, chapter 2 is connected to chapter 1. And in chapter 1, in verse 17, we read, For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Moses, law. Jesus, grace and truth. Moses' first miracle, do you remember what it was? He changed water into blood. Blood speaks of judgment. It's not a blessing. It doesn't speak of joy. Remember when that happened? You know, the ten plagues uh, poured out on Egypt. But according to John's gospel account, Jesus' first sign, recorded sign, was turning water into wine, biblically speaking of joy. But also, I suggest to you, biblically speaking of the Holy Spirit. You say, where do you get that? Remember the Holy Spirit, there are many symbols that are attached to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, we have, you know, Matthew chapter 2, verse 22, Ephesians, you know, again, be not drunk with wine, but be filled, be ye filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2, you know, these are not drunk as you suppose, but they are filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, the world offers things that are always running out. You know, you want joy? Here's joy. Have a drink. Have another. You feeling happy? Have a third. Have a bottle. You drunk. See, the condemnation comes from the enemy, you know. I mean, it's almost as if he wants to, let's party hardy. Until we cross the line and he's the first one to say, what kind of person are you? You're so pathetic. And we listen to him rather than listening to the Lord. What comes from Jesus? Grace and truth. Grace and truth. Not law. Grace and truth. Romans chapter 5 verse 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. The law. Here's sin. Oh, so horrible. What happens if I break your law? Judgment, blood. But here's a means to cover your sin, sacrificial system. The verse goes on to say, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Isn't that wonderful, guys? I've sinned, I've disappointed, I've let down the Lord, I've, I've done it again, I can't believe, I'm, I keep doing this, I keep falling into the same trap. I get, And then you start listening to your own voice. You're never going to change, this is who you are, just accept it. 
And it's like you have to, have you ever, I do this. I would I probably look like a freak because sometimes I talk to myself, but I'm talking to the Lord. It looks like I'm talking to myself. But there are times when thoughts will come into my mind and I will shake my head and almost say, get out of there. It's almost as if I know this is not my thought. <laughs> this is not my thought. It's coming from somewhere else. I remember Charles Spurgeon, you know, the prince of preachers, he was called, he was talking to his father-in-law. And he's talking about the horrible thoughts that would come into his mind. And he said, sometimes I wonder if I'm even redeemed. And his father-in-law wisely said to him, Charles, do you like those thoughts? No, they're disgusting to me. He says, then they're not your thoughts. You don't have to feed it. You don't have to meditate upon it. You don't have to you know, continue in those things. And I think as Christians, many times we need to shake free from the condemnation, you know, that comes from our, our own lips about us. You know, there's some that they don't ever do anything wrong. That's crazy. That's pride. Pride comes before the fall. But there's others. They're constantly living under the condemnation of their own lips, of their own thoughts, of their, you know. And it's like the Lord is saying, no, there's grace, there's grace, there's grace. There's grace. It's not grace to continue in it. It's grace to break free of it. Because I've come to set the captives free. If you're in Christ, you're free indeed. Now walk in this freedom that is yours in Christ. Guys, do we understand? That? These are not just words. These are truths. These are truths. The world offers a joy that's always running out like wine. But Jesus offers a joy that never runs out, that's everlasting, ever satisfying. The Holy Spirit. That's why Paul says, be not drunk with wine, but be being filled with the Holy Spirit. Those old water pots contained something new on that day, didn't they? Those earthen vessels became vessels of blessing on that day. I think of the bridegroom, you know. <laughs> He's the one who's praised. No one said, who's involved in this? No one inquired, no one asked Jesus. Jesus didn't stand up and say, no, I did this in your midst, and this is why I did. No, it's almost like, you know, undercover blessing, you know, just kind of. Jesus is still using earthen vessels. Do you know where I'm going with this? Paul, the writings of Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. He says, but we have this treasure and the treasure he's speaking of, we see it in the verse right a few, a few uh, before this verse, but it says, we have this treasure, the treasure of the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. He's speaking of their own bodies. That the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. You know, um, we cannot say I'm blessed because I'm always obedient, because none of us are always obedient. I look at my life and I say, thank you, Lord. Of all the things you could have spoken to my heart, I didn't hear an audible voice, but all the things you could have spoken to my heart, you could have said, read my Bible, read my word, you know. He said, don't drink. On the day that I received Christ, don't drink anymore. All the things you could have spoke to me, that's what he spoke to me. And and why would he do that? Because he loves me. And he loves our union. And he knew that this union would have been broken a long time ago if I would have continued down that path. And God, who's eternal, who's outside of time, knew that this, this young guy who could barely read, who was a college dropout twice, was going to one day pastor a church on Whidbey Island <laughs> going on 35 years to his glory. 
Do you see what I'm saying? It's not, it's not, you know, and when we come to the end of our lives, I was thinking of this as I was doing a memorial service lately. Uh, I, I was thinking of at my memorial service, I don't want to do what usually people do. You know, we kind of sing the praises of people. You know, they did this, they did that. This was their achievement. This was that achievement. But rather, he loved Jesus, period. He was a follower of Christ, period. Everything else that happened is built upon that one truth. They believe in Christ. They follow Christ. Are you his earthen vessel? containing the truth of the gospel, the glory of Christ. If you are, let it out. Let it out. You've you got you to gotta tell people about the Lord. If you're not and you want to be, then believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13 it says, but as many, come on up, Nehemiah, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Oh, Lord, thank you. Stand with me, please. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you've done and what you're doing in our lives. And Lord, we give you all the glory because you're the one. You're the one who causes us to be born again. You're the one who bestows grace upon grace and mercy upon mercy. You're the one, Lord, though in pride we might pray sometimes, Lord, give us what we deserve. You graciously don't. We thank you, Lord that you're ever merciful. We pray, Lord Jesus, that we would recognize the times in which we live, that they're short, that we'd recognize there's many people all around us that are perishing for lack of knowledge, and that lack of knowledge is lack of knowledge of you, and that we would get out of our comfort zone and share the gospel with people, Lord. You don't hold us responsible for how people respond but you do hold us responsible for sharing the gospel. And so we pray that we would do our due diligence. Lord, we pray that we don't see it in your word. We see that in the last days there will be a great falling away, apostasy. But we pray, Lord, that there might be another harvest of souls. We pray, Lord, that there might be another movement from you of you. We pray, Lord Jesus, that we would once again see people walking in the freedom of Christ. I mean, being set free from anything that intoxicates and changes the mind and changes the personality, and that they are truly walking as new creatures in Christ Jesus. We pray for that, Lord, in Jesus' name.